Good evening, everyone. Welcome to P3, or at least P2, right? Uh, no pub night, unfortunately, until things loosen up. In any event, welcome. St. Benedict is known as the father of Western monasticism. He's a spiritual giant who really brought monasticism to the West. And he wrote his famous rule for monks, which was the basis of the monastic life in the Western church. It's a great spiritual classic. It's really small and it's great, even though it's originally meant for monks, there's some great wisdom in it for all Christians. One of the lines he uses, which is quite striking. Now, maybe you already saw on social media or somewhere what the topic of this uh, reflection is tonight. But so even if you have, but if you haven't, uh, that's what uh, this, uh, this quote is all about. St. Benedict says something very striking in his rule for monks. And I want you to sort of mentally fill in the blank. He says, nothing is more contrary to being a Christian than gluttony. Not what you would probably expect, right? He's a great spiritual master, a great father of the church. Nothing is more contrary to being a Christian than gluttony. Why is that the case? St. John of the Cross says, he who seeks pleasure in something is not empty so that God can fill him with his ineffable delight. He has his hands full and cannot receive what God wants to give him. If we're filling ourselves and seeking to fill ourselves always with earthly things, then we can't be filled with heavenly things. Or as St. John of the Cross says, and this is a foundational principle of the spiritual life, Deny your desires, and you will find what your heart desires. Deny your desires, and you will find what your heart desires. That is, deny those worldly desires, those baser desires, and you will find what your heart really desires deep down, which, of course, is the Lord himself. Nothing is more contrary to being a Christian than gluttony. Think about it. What is the first sin? The first sin. The first sin, of course, was the sin of disobedience. All sin ultimately is a disobedience. Instead of loving God and lovingly obeying him and his law of love for him and for others, we disobey, right? The first sin of our first parents, the first sin of Eve and then of Adam after her, was a sin, we could say, a sin of disobedience, of course, but a sin of gluttony. How does the serpent tempt Eve? with a fruit which is pleasing to the eye that she takes and eats. The fathers of the church, the fathers of the desert see in this that gluttony, indeed, is the gateway to all of the passions. And that's why St. Benedict can say, nothing is more contrary to being a Christian than gluttony. You see, if the most basic drive of all as human persons is the passion or the need or the drive to actually eat and drink, because we have to do so to stay alive, right? then that's the most natural and normal thing. But if that desire becomes perverted, then it can lead to all the other passions in turn. In fact, that's what the fathers of the desert say, that gluttony is the doorway to all of the passions. That's why nothing is more contrary to being a Christian than gluttony. Because if we don't use our will to govern the passion of gluttony, then we abdicate the control of our will over our passions, and rather than us dominating our passions, our passions govern us, right? 
and then all the other passions follow. After lust, I'm sorry, after gluttony comes lust, then greed, then anger, then sadness, then despair, vainglory, and pride, all in a chain. And the reason is because by indulging in gluttony, we are perverting the finality of that, of that passion for food, right? So remember that our passions, our emotions, are morally neutral. We're not responsible for the passions and, and the thoughts and the feelings that sort of just surge within us, right? It's what we do to, with them that makes them either virtuous or vicious, right? That makes them a vice or a virtue, that makes them good or sinful, right? So again, the passion for food, the desire to eat and drink is, is, a, is the most absolute, natural, and normal, animal, basic passion that we have as human persons. We have to eat and drink to fuel the machine to stay alive, right? But those passions are ends in and of themselves, they are not, I'm sorry, they're, they're, they're means to an end. They're not ends in and of themselves. And when we pervert their finality, when we make the passions instead of means to an end, when we make the passions ends in and of themselves and they become the focus, then they become sinful. So what's the purpose of that desire in us for food and for drink? Well, obviously, to maintain our health. To stay alive. Why should we be healthy? So we can serve the Lord and one another, right? God has given us the fundamental law of loving God and loving neighbor. Why do we need to eat? So we can stay healthy, so we can do the work that God has given us to do, especially love of God and love of neighbor. But also in eating, we share communion with one another, right? In general, meals are often prepared in communion with others and certainly shared in communion with others. Obviously, sometimes we find ourselves eating alone, but uh, generally food is something that is shared in communion. We see that so much of Jesus's ministry is through meal sharing, right? That's a privileged place for bringing people together in communion, right? So we eat to preserve our health, to do the work that God has given us to do. We, we eat to foster communion and, and unity with others and fellowship with others. And we eat to also give thanksgiving to God, which is why we bless food. We give thanks to God for the great things that he gives us that we share, that come to us from his bounty. That's the purpose of the passion for food. That's the finality, the end, for that passion that we have to eat and to drink. And inasmuch as we use food and drink to those ends, then we're using them as means to, it, to their proper ends. It's when we pervert that finality and we focus on the food or the drink as the end in and of itself that it becomes sinful. And again, by indulging in that appetite, in that passion, and abdicating using our will to govern that passion, then that weakens our will and it's easy for us to give in to the other passions. If we don't control the passion for food, then it's going to be harder to control the passion of lust and greed and everything else. Right? And that's why, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, Philippians 3.19, he refers to the pagans as, he says, their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. That is, Gluttony can become a form of idolatry. And this is what happens with the passions when we treat them as ends in and of themselves rather than means to an end. When the food becomes the, 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 the purpose rather than health being the purpose and communion being the purpose and thanksgiving to God being the purpose, then it becomes a sort of idolatry. Right? We are worshiping the passion and the thing itself rather than using it as a means to give glory to God and to serve our neighbor. That's why, as St. Benedict says, nothing is more contrary to being a Christian than gluttony. Now, when we talk about gluttony, we realize that there are two types of gluttony, right? There's a gluttony of quantity, and there's a gluttony of quality, 
And this talk tonight is about how to fast with all the senses. Each one of the passions, in a sinful sense, has a corresponding opposite virtue. The passion, the sinful passion of gluttony, has the corresponding virtue of temperance. And one way that we achieve temperance is also by fasting. In any event, there are two types of gluttony, a gluttony of quantity and a gluttony of quality. Now, we talk about fasting in general. Like you fast from meat on Fridays and Lent, right? Well, that's not strictly fasting. That's, stri that's actually abstinence. The fasting of quantity is, fa is fasting, right? Uh, the, fasting or the, the, the fasting from a type of food is actually abstinence. So when you give up a certain amount of food, that's fasting. When you give up a certain type of food, that's abstinence. And so there are two types of gluttony. We can, and normally when we think of gluttony, we think it's eating too much food, right? But we can also be gluttons in matters of quantity. Again, it's when the food becomes the focus, either by quantity, by eating too much and overdoing it that way, which is what most people think gluttony is. But we can also be gluttons in terms of quantity. And it's when the food becomes the focus. You're not necessarily eating too much, but it's all about oh, this is just the most exquisite foie gras, and it's so perfectly paired with this sauterne, and really, you need crackers that don't have salt or pepper, so it really brings out the and And look, God has given us delicious food and wine and drinks to enjoy, right? And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with getting together with friends and having a great steak and a good bottle of red wine and some awesome fries and some chocolate mousse afterwards, whatever you like, right? Great, good stuff. That's not, that's not wrong. It's when it becomes all about the food, right? And it's not just the food sort of being a means to share the fellowship and enjoy the good things that God has given us, but it's all about the food, whether quantity or the quality. You know who brings this out really, really well and really strikingly is C.S. Lewis. I believe it's in um, the Screwtape Letters where he talks about a, uh, a sweet little old British lady who's a senior citizen. She goes to the same little... A pub and has her little tea every afternoon. She has her tea and she has her little cake. And I mean, if you just sat across the pub and you watched her, she had her little cup of tea and with her milk and she has her little cake and that's all she has. But the tea has to be exactly like this and perfect, this amount of sugar. And, the, and she's absolutely obsessed and focused inordinately on how her tea and how her cake are. She's a glutton. And you would never suspect by what by looking at her, but all she's she's inordinately focused on what she's eating and drinking. So gluttony can be quantity or it can be quality. And because these gluttony is a sin, and nothing is more contrary to being a Christian than gluttony, that's why fasting is a constant part of our spiritual tradition. From the Old Testament, through Jesus, through the rest of the New Testament, to today. So Jesus, for example, himself fasts. I mean, why, do, why is Lent 40 days? It's modeled on, of course, the many 40s throughout sacred scripture, but a span which is a symbol of, a, a, a number which is symbolic in scripture of a time of preparation, right? So it, rain, it rains for 40 days, and when Noah gets in the ark, it, uh, the, the Israelites wander for 40 years in the desert on their way to the promised land. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the law of the Lord, but of course, our Lenten fast is patterned on Jesus' own fast as he prepares for his public ministry when he fasts for 40 days. So Jesus, of course, is our master and model in all things. Master because he teaches us, but model because he leads us by his example. 
And his example of 40 days of, of uh, intense fasting gives us the example we follow in Lent. And he teaches us also in that time, as we see in the Gospels, as he responds to the wiles of the evil one while he's, while he's fasting, when he's tempted, he responds, of course, using the word of God. And you've heard me say this before, I'll remind you again. One of the most, if not the most powerful ways of countering temptation is to call upon a word. You know who's really good at this? Are the evangelicals, because they know the word backwards and forwards. I know, call on a word, call up a word, right? What, how does Jesus fight the demon during his, during his temptation in the desert? Each time he says, it is written. He confounds the demons by quoting sacred scripture, the power of the, of the word of God. Right? And one thing he teaches is, man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by bread alone. He fasts, and he teaches that one of the reasons for fasting is that we don't live by bread alone, that the word of God gives us spiritual nourishment, which in some ways is superior to physical nourishment. Obviously, we've got to eat to stay alive. But more importantly, we have to be nourished by the word of God, by God himself. So Jesus fasts and so gives us an example. But Jesus also commands fasting. We see in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and then in chapter 6, he says, when you give alms, when you pray, when you fast, he doesn't say, if you think it might be nice to give alms, or if you should happen to pray, or if you might be inclined to fast, he says, when you do this, he takes it for granted that this is something that we're going to do because it's fundamentally part of the spiritual life. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. That's why, I don't know if you heard my homily on Ash Wednesday, but uh, I always make the point, or I think even this last uh, Sunday, the first Sunday of Lent, I always make the point that, yeah, Lent's a time of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, but it's a time of more prayer and more fasting and more almsgiving because I take for granted, or Christians should take for granted, that ordinary parts of the spiritual life throughout the year involve prayer, fasting and almsgiving, right? That's hopefully these 40 days are not the only days out of the year when you're praying and fasting and giving alms, right? This is a time of more. So why do we fast? Well, Jesus commands it. He said, when you fast, I'm assuming that, that you're going to fast. So when you fast, do it this way. And how does he say to do it? Well, he says that Christians' relationships with food is different than that of the pagans. First of all, you don't fast for show. He makes that very clearly in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, when you fast, wash your face and your hair and don't be all sullen and, oh, I'm, it's Lent and so I can't eat meat on Friday and, oh, the pain and the mortification. It's so, give, forget it. You're losing all the merit by letting the whole world know, you know how difficult your fasting is, right? And how difficult do we really make our fasting in the end or our abstinence? Jesus says when you fast, don't let the world know. Keep it to yourself. And he makes it clear that Christians' relationship with food is different than that of the pagans. He says the pagans are always anxious about what they're eating and drinking. You, don't be anxious about what are we going to eat and what are we going to drink and what are we going to wear. The pagans, the unbelievers, are always running after and worrying about these things. Do Christians eat differently than non-believers? If nothing is more contrary to being a Christian than gluttony, then Christians should be, have a different relationship with food than people who do not believe in and follow Jesus. And that's why Jesus also explains in a broader sense that if we want to follow him, we have to deny ourselves. 
That is deny our fallen selves, our sinful passions, not given to self-love, right? What is self-love? It's the opposite of charity, of true love. True love is loving God and loving the neighbor, putting them first. It's selfless. Self-love is selfish. It's love of our fallen selves. That's why Jesus says we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And part of that denial is denying the passions with the strength of our will. That, in in general, is why we fast. Now I'd like to speak about uh, the purposes and effects of fasting and concretely practical ways to fast. So, the purposes and effects of fasting. Basically, we fast for five reasons. First of all, and most importantly, for conversion of heart. Our whole goal in life is to love God and love neighbor. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. And then Jesus says, and of course the second greatest commandment is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is all the law and the commandments. This summarizes all that God teaches us, that he asks of us. Love of God and love of neighbor. Those two commandments, of course, summarize the ten great commandments. That's our purpose in life. If our purpose in life is to love more and more, to grow in charity, to grow every day more and more loving, to be every day more and more loving of God and neighbor, then that's the purpose that we, that's the main purpose for us fasting, to grow in charity, that is conversion of heart, to become more and more loving. Remember, our Lenten penances are not ends in and of themselves. They should be means to an end that make us come Easter time more loving, more holy, more converted, and more one with the Lord and with one another in love. So why do we fast? For conversion of heart, to grow in charity. Why do we fast? To fight the passions of the flesh and the enemy of our human nature and so to strengthen our will. Remember, the three enemies of our human nature are the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the world is always telling us, uh, come to this restaurant, come to this supermarket, Buy this, buy this, eat this, eat this, buy this, eat this. Okay, so that's one one enemy. But then, of course, we have the natural passion of of glutton of uh, the pa- passion for food within us, right? That natural desire, but can be an enemy because in our fallen human nature, in our concupiscence, we desire to always overdo it, right? Whether in quantity or quality of food. And then, of course, there's the demons who tags team with the pa- tag teams with the passions, right? For each of the passions. As if that's not hard enough, my friends, right? There's a corresponding demon. So we struggle with the passion of, of gluttony, but there's also a demon of gluttony who's whispering in our ears, you can have another one, you can have two more, you can have five more, you can have ten more. It's all right, that won't be too much. You won't feel too bad. Keep eating, keep eating, keep eating. Or focus on the food, focus on the food. You're thinking about the food, you're fasting, so you want more food, you want the chocolate, you gave up the chocolate, have the chocolate, you can do it. I'm, not, I'm pretty good at that, huh? <laughs> from experience, not being a demon, but being being pursued by demons, right? In any event, we also fast to fight the passion of the flesh and to fight the enemy of our human nature, and so to strengthen our will, right? Every time we fight back, we grow stronger, right? You've heard, right? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger? It's true. Why do we fast? How does it work? I could eat the chocolate, it wouldn't be sinful for me to eat the chocolate. There's nothing objectively wrong with eating the chocolate. 
I would like to eat the chocolate, but I freely say no to that good thing, which is chocolate. The more I say no to the good things like chocolate or whatever you like, the more it's easier when you're confronted with the choice of a bad thing to say no because you have the strength of will to say no. In other words, what's a virtue? A virtue is a habit of doing good. And the word virtue comes from the Latin virtus, which means strength. Actually, it comes from vir, viri, which is the Latin word for man, which is manly strength, right? The more, you, the more you build up a good habit, the stronger you are and the easier it is to do it. Vice, of course, is the opposite. It's a habit of doing evil. And the more you choose that evil, the easier it is to do that, too. So the more often you say no to something good, the stronger you become in disciplining your will and being able to say no. And so when you're confronted with a choice which is bad, but also attractive, you have the strength of will to say no. Just like you can say, I could choose the chocolate, I'm not gonna choose the chocolate. I could choose to indulge in gluttony or lust or greed, or I choose not to. You have the strength of will to say no because you've gotten used to your will dominating your passions rather than letting your passions govern you. So one of the reasons we fast is to uh, fight, to strengthen our will in the fight against demons and passions. Another reason we fast is to atone for sin, to make up for our sins, right? By practicing penance, we can make up for our sins. Remember that for every sin, there are two consequences. There's the guilt that we incur by the sin and the temporal punishment, which injustice is due to us to make up for that sin. Now, the guilt of sins is remitted through sacramental penance, right? But we still have to, in justice, do something to make up for that, that injustice and that, that brokenness that we have, we have introduced into the world through our sins. So how do we make up for the punishment which injustice is due to us for our sins? By doing penance. By doing penance. The more penance we do, the more we atone for our sins. We remit the temporal punishment due to our sin and we are more prepared to make it to heaven. So we also fast to atone for sin. We also fast to purify our prayer. When we're focusing less on creatures, on created things, it's easier to focus the mind on the creator. The more and more we become detached from worldly things, the easier it is to attach our minds and our hearts to the Lord. So that. Fasting really purifies our prayer. Again, that great image of St. John of the Cross says, you know, if, you, if your hands are full of, of one thing, you can't fill them with another, right? So if your hands are full of worldly things, you can't fill them, the Lord can't, can't fill them. So the less we're filled with worldly things, the more we can focus in our prayer, in our thoughts on the Lord. And finally, this is something a lot of people don't think about, but uh, one of the classic reasons the church gives this, uh, for us to fast, one of the reasons for fasting is to provide us matter for almsgiving, right? If you're not spending all kinds of money on elaborate and too much food, then theoretically you have extra cash that you can give to the poor who are hungry. So if you give up the chocolates or you give up meat or you give up wine or you give up beer, whatever you're giving up, use that cash and use it for almsgiving, that other great penance along with prayer that we can do in Lent. So those are the reasons for fasting, the five reasons for fasting. Now, concretely how to fast, some specific practical pointers on how to fast. Well, to really fast, to really become detached from creatures with our whole heart, I recommend, as the fathers of the desert do to fast, with all the senses. We tend, again, to think of the fasting in terms of fighting that demon of gluttony, which is fasting by quantity or abstaining in a particular quality of food, right? But we can, we can fast with all five of the senses. 
we, again, we can fast with the sense of taste. That's the classic one. Quantity, give up certain amounts of food and or give up quality, certain kinds of food. But we can also fast with the sense of hearing. Give up secular music. Only listen to spiritual music. Perhaps listen to no music and really embrace silence. It's really in silence and only in silence that we hear the Lord speak to our hearts. So we can fast with a sense of hearing. We can fast with a sense of touch. We can sleep on the floor instead of on our comfortable mattresses. I, I, I shared this talk, and obviously in a different level, in a different way, with, with uh, kids at uh, Holy Family Grade School when I was pastor there years ago. And, um, excuse me, <coughs> I don't know if I told you this story before. Mom comes up to me after Sunday Mass once during Lent and says, you know, Father, you talked to the class about fasting and fasting with all the senses, and my son decided he was going to sleep on the floor in his sleeping bag for all of Lent. She was thrilled. Seriously, this little kid was like, I'm going to give up sleeping on my comfortable bed, and I'm going to sleep in the sleeping bag on the floor of my room for all of Lent. And the, the kid, I think he was like fifth grade, right? Dude, dude was on fire with the faith, right? And the mom was like, this is so cute. I love seeing my kids getting serious about living their faith and doing penance. So awesome, right? Hey, a five-year-old, a fifth grader can do it. We can do it, right? So, uh, yeah, fast by the sense of touch. You know, sleep on the floor. Don't be willing to be less sensitive to heat and to cold and to offer those up in sacrifice. We can fast with a sense of sight, and that is so important today when we are so overstimulated with visual media, right? Fast from screen time whether it's phones, tablets, laptops, streaming TVs, social media, whatever it might be, fast from screen time. You can also wear simple, plain clothes rather than attracting attention by wearing flashy clothes, right? Uh, there's a reason that religious wear, you know, black and brown and stuff. They're, they're by their habits, they're not that you have to wear, you know, brown robes every day, right? I'm not saying that you should be religious or dress like nuns and monks and priests, but there's what you, the point I'm making is that shows a simplicity of life and a, and a, and a, and a, a, a fasting from uh, calling attention to oneself in terms of what one wears, in a sense. Um, and we can fast um, with a sense of smell. Give up those expensive perfumes or colognes or washes or whatever you use, right? Please do wear deodorant, whatever you do, right? But, so we can fast with all the senses. We can fast, and how else should we fast? Fast in secret. This is what the Lord teaches us, right? Fast in secret. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing in terms of almsgiving. And again, when you're fasting, don't let people know that you're fasting. Don't make a big production out of it, right? St. John of the Cross, you know, was a great model of the spiritual life, an extraordinary radical disciple of Jesus, basically lived on, like, bread and vegetables. If the count, he went to the countess's for dinner, the countess served him pheasant, he ate the pheasant. But when he went back, when it was his choice, and he didn't make a big thing, oh, you know, he ate what was put before him, right? Keep it simple, but fast in secret. Don't, don't advertise it to the whole world. Fast to please God alone. Why are you fasting? So you look good, so you lose weight. That might be a byproduct, which might also be healthy. Uh, but are you doing it so people realize you're a great faster? Or are you doing it for God alone? Fast prudently. 
That is always with good Catholic balance. Remember the Goldilocks principle. That's always true for the spiritual life, right? Just right. One extreme to avoid is you never fast. You're a glutton with quantity and quality of food. The other extreme is you're fasting so extremely that you are harming your health and you're not able to do the work that God has given you to do. So fast prudently with balance. Concrete way to fast, to, to fast well is to decide before you're eating what you're going to eat. St. Ignatius Loyola talks about this in his rules for food. You want to look up some great guides to fasting? Look up the rules for eating from the spiritual exercises by St. Ignatius of Loyola. And that is before you go to the table, decide what you're going to eat. So don't sit down. It's like keep, you're like, I'm going to have this much, this much of a portion, or I'm only going to have this. I'm not going to have any dessert. I'm not going to have, I'm going to have water, you know, no beer or wine or soda or whatever. Decide before you eat what you're going to eat and what you're not going to eat. As St. Jose Maria Escrivá said, when you get up from the table without having done a small mortification, you have eaten like a pagan. If when you eat, you just eat with abandon, and there's no sense of denying yourself any one little thing, even if it's just a small thing, you've eaten like a pagan, he says. And finally, uh, another way to fast is, if you have any doubts or questions, consult a spiritual friend. A spiritual friend, a spiritual father, a spiritual director. If you're not sure about that Goldilocks principle or how best to do it so as not to exaggerate, talk it over with someone so that you have a sounding board in that regard. But in any event, remember, my friends, believe it or not, nothing is more contrary to being a Christian than gluttony. So fast. Fast so as to grow in love of God and love of neighbor. May this, our Lenten fast, find us at the end, come Easter, holier, more loving, more united to the Lord, and more united to one another in charity. Amen.